This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this episode, we are going on an absolutely epic adventure. We are going to walk the entire 4,000 mile length of the Yangtze River in China. Are you ready to get your trek on? Me too. Let's go. Taking us on this journey is adventurer and extreme athlete, Ash Dykes. He's an awesome guy. He's a lot of fun to travel with. And he has some really inspiring wisdom he's learned along the way too, which he'll share with us at the end. So if you want to connect with Ash, and I think you will, he posts incredible images and videos from his travels. He really is a modern day explorer and posts throughout his expedition so you can follow along with him the whole way. His Instagram is Ash underscore Dykes. That's D-Y-K-E-S. His Facebook is Ash Dykes Official. And his Twitter and YouTube is simply Ash Dykes. Go and check that out. He has a book out as well called Mission possible, which tells the story of his previous two major expeditions across Mongolia and Madagascar, both insane adventures, but also goes into the spirit, planning, training, and sheer determination that went into these two record-breaking feats. I'll link to it, or just search it up on Amazon, or head over to his website, ashdykes.com, where you can order signed copies of the book for just 10 quid. That's about 15 bucks. I also want to thank the team at Guinness World Records for putting me in touch with Ash. The story we're about to hear today is officially recognized as a world first by Guinness World Records. And they do some great work helping to gain exposure for athletes and adventurers like Ash who are doing extraordinary things and inspiring all of us to go out and get after our own adventure too. Find out more at GuinnessWorldRecords.com and follow them on social media too. Instagram and Facebook is at Guinness World Records and their Twitter is at G. WR. Last but not least, you guys, thank you so much for supporting this show. If you enjoy it, please help by spreading the word. Leave a glowing review, tell a friend, a fellow explorer, or just someone who needs an escape. Please also remember to follow and subscribe to the show. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. I post lots of background photos and more from each and every single episode, as well as some of my own travel photography and writing. The website is armchair-explorer.com, where you can find background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. But don't worry about that right now, because we are about to set out on an absolutely insane trek. One of the most difficult ever attempted, 4,000 miles along the entire length of the Yangtze River. But first, let's hear how a young Welsh lad growing up in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere ended up doing one of the craziest adventures the world has ever seen. I went from high school into my local college down the road to do a two-year outdoor education course. And it was on that course that, you know, half the students were looking to go into the military, half of them were looking to go on to further education, be in university. For myself, it just... I wasn't feeling any of those choices, you know. I really found that I learned far more through hands-on practical experience 
getting out there, you know, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes. And this fascination of and curiosity of travel just grew bigger and brighter. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to try to find a way to make this happen. So I was working at a fish and chip shop. I was working as a waiter. I was then working as a lifeguard. I had a bicycle. I would cycle every day to and from work, winter, summer, it didn't matter. Smashing out 240 plus hours a month, raising the funds so that me and my friend who decided to join me on the travels could just get out there on a shoestring budget. And I mean a ridiculously low budget and just make it happen. Just see what happens. I wasn't thinking too deeply about the career. I just wanted to travel and live and rack up as many crazy experiences, meet people from all over the world, understand different cultures, traditions, understand myself as well and how I react in certain situations and scenarios. You know, that's all a part of human development, which we all thrive on. And I was always into the law of attraction, visualization. I came across a number of quotes. One of them being my favorite was, the biggest danger in life is not doing what you want to do now in the bet that you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. I was like, that's so true. So I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? Turns out, quite a lot. His first big trip was cycling from Vietnam 1,100 miles across the length of Cambodia on a crappy 10-pound bike they found in the market. No gears, no suspension, no puncture repair kit, but they did have a pretty little pink basket in front, so that probably came in handy. Basically, Zero forethought, just pure passion, pure adventure, pure recklessness. But that recklessness, as it turns out, that all-out lust for adventure at all costs came to define Ash as an explorer. And it just escalated from there. After more adventures in the Himalayas, Thailand, Madagascar, he became a scuba diving instructor. He actually became a Muay Thai fighter, believe it or not, just to earn a little bit of extra cash. How hard is that? And then he had an idea for his boldest, craziest, most dangerous expedition yet. This was no longer just messing around on bikes. This was life or death. He planned to cross the entire Gobi Desert in Mongolia on foot and unsupported, something that had never been done before. I had a lot of fear of Mongolia before I set out. Just everything was against me. And I was just a scuba diver living on an island. I had no business with a desert. I'd never been to a desert before, let alone crossing the Altai Mountains, the Gobi Desert and the Mongolian step in one straight journey, you know, pulling 120 kilograms or 260 pounds on a trailer carrying all provisions I needed to survive. You know, a Navy soldier had previously attempted. He was the first recorded person to have ever attempted to walk solo and unsupported. Three times he got caught out just after the halfway point, you know, and I know desert explorer. I believe in the preparation, you know, just because no one's found a way to do it yet doesn't mean it can't be done. We didn't get a chance to talk about that expedition much, but let me tell you, it was nuts. He talks about the heat and dehydration being so bad that he had to force himself to walk just 100 meters then take shelter under the trailer for five minutes because it was the only place he could find shade and then just walk another 100 meters just to stay alive, just to fend off heat stroke and collapse. For 78 days, he did that. And that Navy soldier, by the way, he couldn't hack it. He gave up halfway through. But here's this 20-something bloke out of nowhere, no military training, nothing, just absolutely smashing it. So that quote, which I love, by the way, the most dangerous risk of all is the risk of spending your life not doing what you want on the bet you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. Yeah, he took that pretty seriously, which is why four years later, he set out 
on something even harder. When I left at age 19, the first place that I actually went was China. And I was only in China for two weeks, sort of skirting along the East Coast, sort of typical Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, then went to Southeast Asia. And once I left China, you know, and you're looking at the map of, of Asia, it's like, look how big China is. We've barely touched the surface, you know? And so I knew one day I would return. And I guess what really hooked me was its immense diversity. And I didn't know much about it. I always tend to go for those countries that I really don't know much about that are off the beaten track. And many people do actually go to China, but if they go, they stick to the East Coast, but they never venture out really far West. And I think it was that curiosity of seeing the true rural and wild side of China. But I always need a goal. And for me, I was looking at either the Yellow River, maybe the Great War, and then the Yangtze, as soon as that spring to mind. And I saw that it's almost 4,000 miles. It cuts through Qinghai, near Tibet, all the way around Kelvin, down south, back up to the middle of China, across to the east, over 11 different provinces, all the different wildlife terrains, weather systems that I'd come across. It took over two years to plan, very tough logistically. But from when that idea was there, that was it. I was fixated. The Yangtze is the third longest river in the world after the Amazon and the Nile, and the longest in Asia by far. It runs 3,900 miles from the Tibetan Plateau all the way to its estuary on the East China Sea near Shanghai, passing through an immense range of biodiversity along the way, from some of the largest mountains in the world to tropical forests, wetlands, and even urban environments. 400 million people, a third of China's entire population, live in its basin. That's more than the whole of the United States. So attempting to walk it is ridiculously bold. But eventually, he'd worked out his route, he had his team in place, and he was ready to set off. But in order to walk the entire length of the Yangtze, he had to first find its source. And that was maybe the hardest part of all. It was a mission on its own, just getting to the start. I had my film crew, I had my guide, we set off for the source of the Yangtze River and the morning of day number two, searching for the Yangtze, so it's not started, this is just day number two of looking for the source. My film crew abandoned the expedition. It was then me and my guide, and my guide was with me to pull me off the mountains if I got altitude sickness. He got altitude sickness, vomiting, bleeding from the nose, and I had to pull him from the mountains, and I was like, what are the chances of this? And so that brought me down from the mountains to make sure he got back safely with his family and whatnot. And it was that whole losing four members and being delayed. It was dipping fastly into the winter season, which drops to minus 20 and then on to minus 40. My team in the UK and in China were pretty much saying, look, we've left it too late in the year. You know, abandon the expedition. You know, you can recoup, you can learn more Chinese and prepare more. And, you know, we have another crack at this next year. But I was just too dogged, you know, and I believed in my preparation, my experience. I knew that I could get off the mountains before the true harsh winter hits. It was a risky decision. The source of the Yangtze is up about 5,000 meters, so about 17,000 feet, roughly the height of Everest base camp. And at that height, out in the wilderness without proper shelter, minus 40 will kill you pretty quickly. It was an incredible battle to get there. He was walking through blizzards and relentless wind and cold. He was left alone on the mountain, abandoned by his guides and his team, begged by people back home to pack it in, try again next year when the weather might be kinder, when he can start earlier without delays. But he persevered and eventually, exhausted, beat up, he arrived at the source of the Yangtze. The only problem was the walk hadn't even begun yet. 
He stood there at the source, looking east, and saw 4,000 miles of hard walking ahead of him. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Because the cold and the altitude was only part of the problem. The real issue was the bears. It was torpor season, so they were coming off the mountains because it's too cold. They were actively looking for calories before they go into hibernation. At first, I kind of went with that mindset of, oh, you know, the bears will leave you alone if you leave the bears alone. But the locals were telling me otherwise, you know, show me these photos and videos, bear attacks. And it was horrendous. And you got videos of bears scratching at the doors, the steel doors and killing families. And I'm there in a tent, no weaponry, just a whistle, (laughs) Chinese firecrackers, you know, that's all. And I can't do anything if the bear wants me, the bear has me. And sometimes it's so windy that you can't even hear if there's something like within a foot of your tent. Hideous. <laughs> Hideous. I'm going to link to one of those bear videos. No one gets hurt in it, but oh my God, is it terrifying. The Tibetan blue bear is a subspecies of the brown bear, but I think it would be more accurate to say it's like a brown bear after someone's poked it with a stick and nicked all its honey. It is Angry, ferocious, and not afraid. In this part of the world, people die from bear attacks every year, and especially at this time of year, when they're desperate to build up on calories before the long winter hibernation. You can't blame the bear, of course, they're just doing their thing, and more often than not, it's us humans that are getting in the way and encroaching on their turf. But none of that matters when you're staring down the barrel of one of these beasts. So it was serious. And he was... in a tent which is basically like a candy wrapper for one of these bears. And the thing is, they weren't the only animal that wanted a piece of him. He also had to contend with the beasts that were put out there to fight off the bears. They're called Tibetan Mastiffs, which back at home are pretty sweet, cuddly, fluffy dogs. But out here, they are basically what would happen if you mixed a lion with a pit bull. And that's not even a joke. They actually look like that. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. They pretty much protect the livestock from the threat of bears, wolves and snow leopards, but they're brutal. They're almost semi-wild because they're just outside in the winter, minus 40, doesn't matter, they're covered in icicles and snow, you know. They are angry, angry dogs. And a lot of the time they were more of a threat than the bears because I was coming across them a lot more, of course. And this one time there was two Tibetan masters that weren't 
pinned down, weren't staked in the ground, and they just went for me, you know, and I'm having to throw rocks, big rocks, hitting them, they're, they're coming for more. I'm having to swing everything and anything I can, just trying to keep them both in front of me and stop one getting behind. And it was exhausting, it was like after a Muay Thai fight, I managed to roundhouse kick one. I ran out of rocks, so I was like, right, it's got to be done. It just came back for more, unfortunately. He roundhouse kicked the animal that fights off snow leopards. That's how hard Ash is. Tibetan folklore says that one Tibetan mastiff can guard 400 sheep, defeat three wolves, and one leopard single-handedly. But apparently, two of them are useless against a Welshman. So there you go. He fought off the dog lions and fought deeper across the hard mountain terrain of the Tibetan plateau. And the further he walked, the harder it got. It got colder, he had to cross glaciers and freezing rivers, he faced landslides. Much of the Yangtze is framed by steep V-shaped valleys which are unstable and dangerous. He was even arrested a couple of times by the Chinese authorities. He was getting closer though, closer to the end of this first tough mountainous region. Closer to the lower tropical lowlands. He thought he was through the worst of it. But he wasn't. This is quite a funny story, actually. It was me and Kyle, my videographer. He was joining me for four days. And as we were disappearing into another V-shaped valley, we quickly checked with the last remaining locals because we didn't know how many days we'd go without seeing locals again. If we're heading the right direction and what the sort of distance is and what should we be prepared for. And as we got talking to them, they were Tibetan, which was annoying because my friend was fluent in Mandarin, amazing Chinese speaker, but he couldn't understand them. But he still wanted to film everything, right? Because we're filming for a documentary. So he caught everything, wanted to film me interacting. And there I am. I remember them trying to warn us of, of something, but we had heard it all before, you know. We just sort of, ah, oh, thank you. We wave and crack on. And for the next two days, as we pushed on, we could hear howling, which was beautiful at first, you know, really majestic, awe inspiring, but creepy at the same time, you know. It sounded like it was a pack of maybe five or six wolves, and they seemed to be on our tail. Normally, they cover bigger distance. So we were quite surprised that the next day we could still hear them, and they were the same proximity between us, and they were just on the same mountain as well. It seemed like they were scouting for any injury, probably watching us to see if we were limping because it's risky for wolves to go for a human. They don't really like to risk that much, you know. Eventually, they left. Fast forward six months, and my editor in Beijing gets the video footage that Kyle had filmed, and she calls me up, and I was like, you don't have a clue what that guy was telling you. But what he was saying is right down in that valley where you're about to go, a lady was killed only yesterday by a pack of wolves. Great start, right? You spend two years planning and then lose your entire support team on the second day, get nailed by snow blizzards and subarctic conditions, pass through hungry bear country with nothing but Chinese firecrackers for protection, get in a fight with some Tibetan mastiffs, and finish off with a nice few days getting tracked by a pack of wolves. But he did make it down, and eventually and gradually the land changed from high mountains to tropical forests, and the going got a little easier. He walked beside Tiger Leaping Gorge, one of the deepest canyons on the planet. He trekked through the unbelievably beautiful Blue Moon Valley, turquoise lakes surrounded by soaring peaks and waterfalls. It was an incredibly stunning part of the journey. And slowly, the further south he went, the more populated it became too. And that's when things got really interesting for Ash. 
it's about six months each half so it's a good six months sort of wild and survival based if you like still coming across more locals the further south you get but then the flip side on the last half of Mission Yangtze it was more communities more towns I was able to really mix and mingle with the locals I never like it to be you know one man and his journey that's not the case it's about the locals their way of life their culture their tradition their dialects and their food which they're always happy to take me under the wing and show me the craziest food insects you name it I will name it and its name is worms and not just your average little slimy buggers either because Ash isn't just extreme when it comes to walking ridiculous distances and fighting off local wildlife he's also extreme when it comes to putting things in his mouth when we came to the city of Panjihua, that was pretty much the most southern part of the Yangtze. And the locals, you know, they were excited to show me their delicacy, which is a Panjihua city delicacy of these pasha worms, which are kind of like sandworms that burrow in the Yangtze underneath the rocks in the sand. And they were excited, you know, I'd go with them. They're lifting up, trying to find these worms and they're gruesome little things, you know, probably about two, three inches long, lots of legs, a hard shell, very pussy and juicy on the inside. They fill you up. And I pretty much asked the guy, you know, because I know that they cook them and put them like and decorate the rice <laughs> in these pasha worms but I said you know can you eat it raw and he was like well we don't really do that but you know you can and so he popped its head off pulled its guts out and popped it in and so I do the same and I'm eating and then halfway through he's just like just remember to fully chew it because if it's still alive whilst you swallow it it's going to grip on your throat and crawl back out oh my god that is maybe the best worst food story I've ever heard they crawl Back up your throat. But he survived, the worm didn't. And the further south he walked, now well into the second half of his journey, the more towns and cities he passed along the way. And it became a very different kind of adventure. Sadly, as well as being one of the most impressive rivers in the world, it's also one of the most polluted. And actually one of the reasons Ash took on this whole expedition was to help raise awareness of that. So the Yangtze became more urban, more industrial. And although that sounds like a downer, there was an upside because the Chinese people were starting to catch on to what he was doing. And before he knew it, and to his great surprise, Ash was a blooming celebrity. I remember a guy joining me for their live stream on their social media and he had 1.5 million live streamers watching for seven hours as he just joined me. Like when he's going to the toilet, he has to pass me the tripod and I've got to speak to these 1.5 million people, trying to converse in Chinese. It was different celebs. It was like the, the members of public. We had the book translated into Mandarin. So I was doing book signings. It got to a point where even GQ called me and they wanted to do a shoot with Jackie Huang, who's like a big sort of movie star out there. And I'm like, with this beard, this ginger beard at this point, should I say, sunburnt, patchy, red eyes, just this wild man. And they want me for the shoot. Again, you know, you've got the first six months, which was wild and extreme. And then the second six months where I'm delivering presentation of the evening that I arrive in that city. And then I crack on with my rucksack the next morning, plodding along, you know, it's, it was just mental. Yeah. That photo shoot, by the way, was for Jet Li's Adidas clothing and shoe line called Wuji, which is pretty awesome, isn't it? One minute you're a sweaty mess and the next minute you're rubbing shoulders with Chinese Kung Fu royalty. And that theme continued because the more he traveled, the closer he got to Shanghai and the end of his journey, the more that cultural side, the people, that different world he speaks of, the different world he wanted to learn about and explore, that, even more than the wild beauty of the first half, was what really made the trip. 
It sounds funny me saying this, but I hate walking. Wait a minute. What? You hate walking? Over the last six years, Ash has walked more than 7,500 miles. That's basically like walking from the east coast of America to the west coast four times. But actually, the walking for Ash is just a means to an end. The really interesting stuff is what happens in between. It's not why I do this, you know, it's the people I meet, what I come across, it's the survival, the dangers, and it's these experiences. Yeah, you know, I was taken in by a bunch of opera singers and taught how to sing opera. I'd probably never, ever be accepted back there again. That was awful. I was taken in and taught Kung Fu in Wang Fujin Temple and Wadang Temple. I was taught how to meditate. I think just seeing sort of how diverse the cultures were along the way, each and every one was solely unique, you know, from the yak farmers on the plateau who have the worries of, you know, following the seasons, protecting their livestock from the wildlife, to then dropping down and you've got more paddy field workers and they'll welcome you in and they've got these crazy delicacies to throw in certain parties and events and traditions in certain ways to then your cities. And that was interesting with the cities because you've got a big transition going on now. You've kind of got the old the generation and certain dying out traditions and the younger generation who were worlds apart they are like social media tech heavy and then you've got a nomad you know you've got all of the amazing transportation and your teenagers driving around in in porsches lamborghinis but then you've got your your 70 80 year old bang bang workers who are guys that literally still almost like human donkeys who are still hauling stuff over because they need money and that's all they know it was just interesting seeing that side. It's so fast changing, but yet they're still living heavily amongst each other. And you can see two different, like a generation that's worlds apart within the same city. So yeah, I was learning a lot and you know, I tried to really dabble in as much as I possibly could along the way. He passed through modern high-tech cities with towering skyscrapers, which would illuminate each night with spectacular light shows that would dance across the sky. And then smaller, older towns where people still dressed in traditional clothes timber buildings with curved cypress wood roofs and golden temples. He made friends, locals invited him into their homes or walked a few steps along the way with him until finally, 350 days after he started down that impossible journey from the source of the Yangtze at the roof of the world, he reached the finish line. My team had planned for this big event. And so, you know, people were there. My family had flown over. And it was the day before I finished that we were hit by a red alert typhoon. And everyone had to run for shelter. And I was like, I literally finished this 352-day expedition tomorrow. And part of me thinks I could have pushed on. But it would have just been selfish, these people coming over and I'd be putting their lives in jeopardy. So I said, right, we're going to hold back. It lasted for two days. I had to hold back for two painful days. I just wanted to get to the finish, you know. And it's something that plays with your mindset because you have finished, but you still got to do the miles and, and get to that point. But then eventually, yeah, it cleared. It was bright blue skies. It was a hot day. And there was, you know, over a hundred of us live streaming to millions. And we sort of all crossed the finish line together where the Yangtze River meets the East China Sea. And it's crazy to see how wide it was, you know. In the source, it's so narrow, you can obviously step over it. Yet here near Shanghai, it's almost 10 miles wide. And you've got cruise liners and seeing all the locals that rely on this Yangtze. And I'd watched it from its infancy and followed along our year for thousand miles later and just seeing it change from it being so still and calm to then just being rip roaring 
and dangerous. You know, I came across communities that were you know, living along that Yangtze, using it for everyday life. And as I pushed on, I heard that that village that I've just been at has been absolutely destroyed by that river. And they all had to sort of evacuate into the mountains to higher ground. And, you know, it's pristine and beautiful, but deadly as well. I think out of all of the rivers, this is probably due to the population of China. It's taken more lives than any other river on the planet, just because it's so unpredictable. And the V-shaped valleys, you know, you've got this big river, but then you've got these massive cliffs right above it. And everyone chooses to live alongside it. So it's this majestic sort of beast, but it can be a straight savage as well, you know. And just watching that as it comes through the different terrains, one minute it's boiling, one minute it's freezing, snowstorms, it's everything. It was just unbelievable. He'd done it. 4,000 miles across some of the hardest terrain in the world, on his own, the first person in history to walk the entire length of the Yangtze River. He'd faced bears and wolves and guard dogs from hell. He'd been hit by blizzards and typhoons, altitude sickness and Arctic cold. He'd survived landslides, multiple arrests, and perhaps, worst of all, a worm that crawls up your throat after you've eaten it. He set out a year and eight million steps earlier to explore part of China almost no one goes to and to try and understand a culture that is in many ways completely different and alien to the one that he and many of us grew up with. Not only did he do that, he became a Chinese celebrity along the way too. And through that and the kindness of the strangers and the locals he met, the people who gave him food and shelter and directions and help, and without whom he never would have been able to make it, he discovered that that different world, as he called it at the start, was actually, when you get down to it, a lot like ours. And that brought our two worlds just a little closer together, which was maybe the most important achievement of the whole trip. But the hardest part wasn't the physical endurance required, though that would break most of us. Ash is an insanely fit guy. And despite the fact that he hates walking, he's bloody good at it too. The hardest part was simply the mental challenge to keep going. And that, more than anything else, is what he prepared for. The Yangtze mission was the first mission I actually questioned what I was doing with all of the teams having to be evacuated with so many things going wrong with so many threats with the team now saying just try again next year got to a point where I did I asked what, what am I doing why am I doing this again why am I here again day number two still got you know 350 days left it was daunting and I did face a lot of fear and I did face a lot of mental struggles physical demands as well you know toenails dropping off blisters, rubs on my shoe, you name it, super skinny, losing weight, all of that. But, you know, I believe that I had prepared for that. All of the ground training that I did here in the UK, I was telling myself, expect the worst case scenario. There's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. There's going to be blizzards, you know, expect them to be the biggest. It's that psyche that if you're expecting worst case and worst case was to unfortunately happen when you're out there, it doesn't come as a shock or a surprise. It comes as something like, you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I signed up for this. I'm, I'm doing this. Just crack on with it. So there were many mental battles. And, you know, that whole journey is funny because the main goal was the finish 4,000 miles away. And that's important to have so you can see yourself crossing that finish line. But I also had goals where I had like a certain town to get to, which was a week away, or a community three weeks away. And so within my main goal, I had lots of little goals, but not only did I visualize those goals that I was aiming to come across, I think the difference is I was visualizing all of the worst cases possible. You know, I think people when they're in like a traumatizing situation or like a, a deep struggle, and what helps is visualizing the next goal or the, the ending 
but no one really visualizes what that's going to feel like. And then when they're in that moment, they tend to panic. And so each struggle that I came across, I had already pre-anticipated that struggle and visualized what that would be like so it didn't come as a shock. So whilst visualizing the goals and planning for the goals, I was planning for the storms, I was planning for the wolves. And so by visualizing the worst case scenario and all of the little wins and little losses along the way really helps to make the big picture of getting to that finish. Visualization is an incredibly powerful thing. It's been proven scientifically time and time again that working out your brain is as important as your body. You probably know that. Athletes do it all the time. But I think what sets Ash apart is the way that he does it. Most of us, if we do it at all, visualize the finish line, the success. We visualize us winning, but we don't visualize the struggle. We don't visualize the moment at which we're about to give up, the moment of despair when we just can't take it anymore. And that's Ash's point. To be successful, you have to visualize the struggle. You have to imagine yourself in that moment of struggle and desperation and anguish so that when it comes, and it will, you're prepared for it. And I think there's an important lesson in that too, because so often what we do is we choose our goal. We choose where we want to be. And then we dream about that. What we don't choose, what we don't dream about or visualize is the struggle to get there. Those are the difficult parts. Those are the things we should be training ourselves to overcome. Lessons that I learned from these expeditions that I'd like to pass on if anyone chooses to take on board is no matter what you're working towards, you're always going to have sort of the naysayers or people that just don't see it for you. That's why my book name is called Mission Possible because many of these expeditions were put down as impossible and I was actually laughed at attempting these with, you know, the experience of not being military or anything, just humble beginnings, no financial, no university degree. It doesn't matter if no one else sees it for you. What's important is if you can see it for yourself. That makes all the difference. Second one with Madagascar, this was when I was stuck in the jungles, leeches, you know, sucking my blood, spider bites, hungry, sort of hunting and gathering, no motivation whatsoever. Is that whatever you're working towards again in life, it's important to understand that you can't always be motivated, but you can be disciplined. A lot of the times I have not been motivated at all. I've hated it and I've been like, I don't want this. And it's not the motivation that got me through because I had zero motivation. It was the discipline. I had to just keep getting up. And that brings me on to the third which was to keep breaking my goals down. You know, if I looked at the Yangtze journey as a whole sort of 352 days, that's enough to put anyone off, especially when your team have been evacuated before you've reached day number one. And I just had to say, tomorrow's another day. Just focus on every single day. And again, that's what happened. Taking it back to Mongolia when everyone said it was impossible to me. I looked at the whole trip and instead of the anticipated to take 100 days, I looked at every single day to search for that impossible day. When I broke it down into every day, I realized every day is possible. You can't always be motivated, but you can be disciplined. I love that. I've never really thought about it like that before. We often think of motivation as the fuel to keep us going. And that's probably true to a large extent. But as Ash says, there are so many times in so many different ways and aspects of our life when we lose our motivation. And what keeps us going then is discipline. The discipline to get up again, to put in those thousand hours, to accept the struggle as well as the goal. And no matter what that goal is, what Ash's adventure shows us as well is that your goal can be attained too, whatever it is. 
If it's something that you want bad enough, if it's something you visualize hard enough, something you're prepared to fight for, to struggle for, to block off the naysayers and go for the life, not just that you want sometime in the future, but the life you want now. Because the most dangerous risk of all is the risk of spending your life not doing what you want now on the bet you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. Thank you, Ash. Thank you so much for taking us on this incredible adventure and showing us a side to China that few people get to see. His Instagram is Ash underscore Dykes. That's D-Y-K-E-S. His Facebook is Ash Dykes Official. And his Twitter and YouTube is simply Ash Dykes. Remember to check out his book, Mission Possible, which goes into a lot more detail about the lessons he's learned from his adventures and how that can help you in your own life and dreams and explorations. I'll link to it on the episode page or head over to ashdykes.com to order a signed copy now. So we're just about done. Thank you so much for listening, for being a part of this community and for being an explorer, for being a dreamer. So keep looking for that wonder and amazement all around you because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.